The word this morning comes from Colossians 3, verses 18 through 4, verses 1. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your word. Lord, your, your word is true. Your word brings comfort. Lord, your word challenges us. Lord, sometimes it's difficult to understand some of the things that are in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now, that you would fill this room, that your Holy Spirit uh, would begin opening our minds and our hearts to not only understand but to embrace the truth of your word. Lord, I, I thank you for Ryan. I thank you for how careful he is with your word. But even in the midst of that, Lord, I pray that uh, you would silence his voice and you would magnify your own. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's this story in the Bible where Jesus uh, is with his disciples and he was, he was traveling to this guy's house named Jairus. And it's because Jairus had, had begged Jesus uh, to come and to heal uh, his daughter, his little girl that was, that was sick. It wasn't, it wasn't looking good uh, for her. And so Jesus uh, agrees to do this. And, and on the way there, this, this huge crowd has gathered about Jesus because he had just healed this guy that was a demon-possessed. I mean, all of these things were happening. So the scriptures say that there was a throng that was following Jesus. I don't know what a throng is, but I have a feeling it's a lot of people. And they were, they were following Jesus. And, uh, and, and as they were making their way to Jairus' house, uh, Jesus and his entourage were kind of there in the middle of the group of people, uh, his 12 disciples. And, and, and uh, Jesus, um, Jesus stops uh, for a moment there, and he says, hey, I feel that power went from me. Now, kind of in the midst of the crowd was this lady. Now, uh, there was this lady that had been sick for at least 12 years. She had this blood issue that... that that really made her, how do I say, unclean. Um, she was not able to worship like other people were because of her illness. She was seen as an outsider, as an outcast to society, and she got to this place where she had seen all the doctors, the scriptures say. Uh, she had she'd spent a lot of money and a lot of time seeing different physicians that could maybe heal her and make her better uh, to no avail. And so she got to this place where she was desperate, um, tired and at her wits end. And, and, and so because she had heard about Jesus, 
she thought to herself, you know, there's no way that he'd make time for me. He's a rabbi. Um, he, he can't be in my midst because it would, it would make him unclean. But maybe if I could just, maybe if I could just touch him. Maybe as he's passing by, if I just touch the, the, the hem of his garment, maybe, maybe, it would, maybe it would do something for me. It was a last ditch effort. She had nothing to lose. And, and so she thinks to herself, maybe if I could just be in his presence, it would change me. It would heal me. I'd be different. And so she reaches out to touch him in the midst of that group of people. And immediately, the scriptures say, the bleeding stopped. And she was healed. And Jesus says, who touched me? Who thought it was possible to touch me? Who had the audacity to touch me? We don't know what his attitude was, but he knows that power has gone out from him. The scriptures say this in Mark chapter 5, verses 33 and 34. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, if I was this lady and someone said, who touched me? And there was a group of people, I would have been like, I don't know. I think it was them back there, you know. I mean, it wasn't me. Um, it would have been one of those things. But she's, she, all of a sudden, I think she just feels like Jesus is God. And she says, I'm just going to, he knows the truth. I'm just going to tell him the whole truth. And so she comes before him humbly and says, Jesus, it was it was me. I've been sick. I'm unclean. I can't worship. I can't be with my family. I'm a, I'm a stranger. I don't feel close to God. I don't feel like I could be in His presence. And I just thought just maybe, maybe you could do something about it, Jesus. And so he leans in, and I picture it like this. He gives her a hug and draws her in, making himself unclean ceremonially. And he says, daughter. Daughter, he draws her into something deeper than she ever thought she could even have. She didn't think that she could have a relationship with God himself, and he draws her in. So what does he heal her of then? She's already been healed of the, the disease of, of the blood before Jesus ever drew in and said, Daughter, sure he healed her of that, but maybe he healed her of something even deeper than the bleeding. And this is where I want to go today. Maybe he healed her of this fear of living in the presence of the Lord in all of her life. I mean, could it be that the toxic nature of our sinful brokenness damages us more deeply psychologically than it does physically? You know, this lady thought she couldn't be close to Jesus because of her sin, and Jesus shows her that that she can stand before the face of God himself and be in perfect relationship with him. Daughter, son. This is what Jesus has come to do. She could have, she could have stayed in isolation and hidden and, and been drowned in her despair, but she didn't. She reaches out because it's possible to live before the face of God. Church, the big idea of where I want to take us today uh, from the Scriptures is this. We were made to walk in God's presence. Would you say that with me? We were made to walk in God's presence. And when you, when you hear that, I want you to think back to Genesis. Think back to Genesis. What happens in the book of Genesis? Adam and Eve are in the presence of God, the perfect presence of God. And what happens when sin enters into the world, the first thing that they do is what? 
hide. All of a sudden, God's presence in their life is a problem. The thing that Jesus has come to do in our lives is to make the presence of God no longer a problem in our lives, but a delight. And we see this happening as we've been walking through the book of Colossians, especially in chapter 3. It talks about how the gospel has made us new. And because of that, we have new character qualities, things that we're putting on, things that we're taking off. Because of that, we've got new ways that we relate to God's people, to God's creation, because He has made us new. Now, in, in uh, church history, there was this phrase that came about uh, several hundred years ago. It's in Latin, and it's this phrase, quorum dio. Quorum dio. And, and quorum means this. It means face to face. So think of it like this. Maybe you have a good friend, and you have face-to-face interaction with them. So close that they tell you when you've got coffee breath or spinach teeth or something else embarrassing. I don't know. that You have this face-to-face relationship with them. What the early church fathers believed is that that's how we live before God. And I would, I would suggest that the scriptures say that, that we live all of our lives before the face of God. And when we see that that's the way that we live life, it changes how we relate to everyone. It changes how we relate to our spouses if you're married. It changes how we relate to our children if you have them. It changes how we relate to our work. It changes everything. And the kind of the impetus of this is, is given to us in Colossians 3.15. The power, the lens that we see life through as these new creations comes from Colossians 3.15. And, and, and Paul writes this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it rule in your hearts because you've been called in one body and be thankful because of that. So if we're Christians, if we've, we've called upon the name of Jesus, He's forgiven us of our sins We're walking in fellowship with Him. This is what is true of us. We're walking before His face in every single thing that we do. The Scriptures say that nothing is hidden that will not be revealed in time. Now, when you live that way, it changes how you talk to people, doesn't it? It changes how you do your work. It changes how you speak to your husband or your wife or your children. It changes Everything, because when Christ is the King, the Lord of your heart, He begins to reorder every relationship around this idea. I belong to Jesus, and that changes everything. So I have three, just three things I want to talk about from this passage. And they really are all about different types of relationships, because that's where Paul takes us. And uh, I'll tell you where I'm going, and then we'll go there. The first one is this, living before the face of God in marriage. second one is this, living before the face of God uh, in, our, in our homes, in our families. And the third one is this, living before the face of God in our work. Let's dig in together. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Scripture said this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. So, so Paul is describing a few specific areas where the old self tries to take over the new self. And, and it's interesting because he starts in the relationships that are closest to you. Because I don't know if you've picked up on this, but typically the people that are closest to us uh, get the most collateral damage from our sin, don't they? So he, he starts in with husbands and wives here. And, uh, and he says the Lord's presence changes how we view and use power in marriage, basically. Throughout these eight verses or so that we're looking at, I find it interesting that 
the Lord's presence or Jesus' name is mentioned eight times. Anytime in the scriptures when you see something repeated, it's because you need to remember it. And he wants us to know that it's not just you and your wife, it's not just you and your kids, it's not just you and your work, but it's you, the Lord, in you and your work and your family and your marriage. It changes everything and how you live. I mean, for instance, in, in, in marriage, the world has this other message that it sends us. And it's this message that there is no leadership in marriage other than self. For instance, my expectations, if they're met, the marriage will be great. If my expectations are not met, I want to hit the eject button like on a DVD player, right? I want to get out of this thing as quickly as I can. Now, I know that there are grounds in the scriptures for divorce. I'm not leaning into that today. I don't have time to get there today. But I'm just talking about when expectations are unmet. We, we, we typically want to hit the eject button when we're thinking about marriage from a worldly perspective. Now, Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is really not about you. I love to do weddings because I typically really don't mention the two people in front of me at all. I don't know if they like that or not. But Ephesians 5 says this. Marriage is about Christ and the church. These two people standing in front of me when I'm officiating a wedding, these are, these are just icons of Jesus and the church. That's, that's what they are. That's what this whole thing uh, images. And that's what every marriage images is Jesus and the church. Now, we've had so many poor pictures of marriage in our life. We've had some good ones, and maybe if you're like me, you've had some poor ones as well. And it's hard for us to imagine this working out well. The Bible is not calling here uh, for wives to blindly submit to their, to their husband's leadership. To just, you know, just, just cast aside any cares and concerns and just whatever you say goes, honey. That's not what the Scriptures are calling us to. But, but rather, he's addressing a consequence of the curse. When you, when you think about Genesis chapter 3, uh, Adam is silent. Eve takes the leadership. They both buy into sin. That's what happens in Genesis 3. And then after this, God comes and he gives consequences for the disobedience that's occurred. You know, he starts with Eve and then Adam and then he gets to Satan. And one of the things that he says to Eve uh, is, is that your desire will be to, here's this word, rule over your husband. Your desire will be for his role in the marriage. And in New City, we believe that everybody is equally made in the image of God. But when it comes in these relationships, especially like in a marriage, that there are differing but equal roles. I'm sorry, differing but complementary roles in marriage. And so husband and wife complement one another in their roles. And what we begin to see is that what happens is that Jesus says that, that the husband should be leading the family, but not in this like reckless leadership, but in this humble leadership, the same way uh, that Jesus laid down his life for the church, the husbands are supposed to lay down their lives for their wife. And, and to believe, it, what, what he's calling for, for is this, is that wives are to believe the best about their husbands and empower their leadership even though it's imperfect because Jesus is Lord. Because you've submitted your life to Jesus. It's not because your husband is always knocking it out of the park because he's not. 
the source of strength is not in our spouse. It's, it's Christ in our family, Christ in our marriage. So as, as an example, um, you know, as a husband, uh, whenever I know that Megan is for me and we're both in this sweet spot with Jesus where he's ruling in our hearts, it's almost like we make decisions together always. There's, there's not this contention over decisions at home. And the reason is not because of me, even though I would like to tell you that this morning. It's not because of me. It's because of Jesus. She doesn't trust and submit to me because I'm awesome and always do the right thing. She does that because Jesus is reigning in her heart. Now, if I'm honest with you, it's scare, it absolutely scares me to death that Jesus has given me the role in our marriage to lead my wife. If you're a man in here and you're married, it should scare you too. Now, the reason is, is because I know what my heart is capable of. It's capable of manipulation, dishonest gain, image protection, deceit. It's capable of all of those things. But what Jesus does in me and in every man that follows him is he reframes how we view power and leadership. It's more about sacrifice and submission to him than it is this power play where we call the shots and everyone has to listen to us. So wives, when, when Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, what he's saying is submit to Christ in your husband. Submit to Christ in your husband as is fitting in the Lord because he's present in your marriage. Now I know that you at times don't trust him. That he's, that he's hurt you at times. That he's done the wrong thing at times. But I'm working in him as much as I'm working in you. So trust me in this. And it will be this image to the world of the church that Jesus is better. Now, w- women in the, in the same way, just like what happened in the garden, um, the rule and reign of Christ in your heart leads you to trust Jesus in your husband more than your husband. Um, in the garden, you know, we, we talked about this, but Eve took the driver's seat because Adam was silent. And men, you still have that tendency to be silent when you should speak. And, 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 and husbands, what, what can happen at times is that, you know, you, you are harsh with your wife because you're not getting your way. If there's anything that we don't see in Jesus, it's harshness. Even when Peter, you think about that time when Peter is like, man, I'm going to stand up for Jesus. And he pulls out his little sword and he's like, you know, takes off that guy's ear. Jesus shows compassion and he's getting ready to go on the cross. Jesus isn't harsh, he's gentle. So husbands, anytime that you find yourself being aggressive and harsh, it's because something is malfunctioning in your peace with Jesus. It's an opportunity for you to sit back and say, whoa, 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 what's going on in me? And don't be offended if your wife comes to you and she says, hey, you've been a little short with me and the kids today. Yeah, I don't know what's going on, but I just, just wanted to remind you that, you know, that, that's, that's really not the way this is supposed to work. What, what would it look like for you to have the humility for that kind of honesty to be allowed in your marriage? I think your wife would trust you more and more and more and more. I just want to encourage you not to settle for that. Don't settle for that. If you're, if even today, if your marriage, you, you know, you're looking at it and you say, man, I'm kind of in crisis. We can't figure it out. Fight for it with everything in you. Bring other people in to speak and to help you work through it. Because it's not just about you and her. 
It's about Jesus and the church for the world. There's much more going on in every little marriage uh, that, 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 we, that we get to see into because uh, Jesus is present in our marriages and we live before his face. The second thing I want to say is this, that we, we live before the face of God uh, in the home. So let me remind you what Colossians 3, 20 and 21 says. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. He sees it. He's with you. Fathers, do not provoke your children. This one hits hard, lest they become discouraged. So to live before the face of God at home is for children to obey their parents because the Lord has given them these parents and he's present in their family. Now, a, a child's obedience to their parents pleases the Lord, not just mom and dad. It's, 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 the, it's the conduit for which the Lord is reigning in your life at whatever age that you're in. Um, we, we never get off the hook, right? I mean, we, as long as our parents are living, we're called to honor them and to obey them. So, so here's the interesting thing about this, though. We're in an interesting time uh, in history. And, and the reason is, is because I think that, for the most part, the problem uh, with, child, with our children's disobedience, I'm not going to let them off the hook completely, has m- just as much to do with parents than it does with kids. Let me explain uh, for, for a second. Um, our kids don't have the opportunity to make good decisions when they don't know what the boundaries are. Part of the problem with our hyper-tolerance-driven culture is that we're afraid to draw any lines. And in church, I, I, one of the places that grieves me so deeply is to see things like seven- and eight-year-olds having sexual reassignment surgery. I mean, it's, it's so heavy, isn't it? And I know that's a, an extreme example, but if there's anything that we ought to know as parents is that our kids don't have the ability to make wise decisions. That's why you were given to them. I mean, if you have any doubt of this, just watch Roman and Maggie drive their neighbor's Barbie power wheel in the cul-de-sac. I mean, they can't make good decisions. They're all over the place. They need you deeply. And, and part of that warning to not, for fathers not to provoke their kids is that what we do as, as fathers in leading our wives and leading our families is that we help set up the structure for what it looks like to thrive as a human being, to flourish. And that involves um, not just rules, but it involves consequences and sticking to those consequences. Uh, if, if, we, if we think that we are damaged from our parents' uh, parenting, as every, everybody's got some kind of a wound from their, from their you know, upbringing, right? I mean, some of us are really deep and heavy. Uh, others of us, maybe not as much, but, you know, we all need a little counseling, um, regardless of how we were raised. But, but I just want to say, we, we have no idea what will result from this type of flimsy parenting if we don't require our children to be obedient. Listen to Proverbs 22.6. It's a familiar verse. You've probably heard it before. But I want to remind you of it. It says this, train up a child in the way he or she should go. And when he's old or she's old, he won't depart from it. Now, this is a verse that cuts both ways. If you train up a child to say that they get to rule the family, they get to set the rules, anything they do goes. When they're older, don't be surprised when they're, when they're in trouble all the time. 
or they don't have these clear, they don't, they don't understand how to live under the authority of others. And the, on the other side of this, if you train up a child to see that there are boundaries and there are consequences for sin and disobedience, when they're older, they might get it a little easier. And I think it's key that we, that we remember this. Um, we must remember in our parenting that the Lord is present and that we have the opportunity as parents, get this, to set the frame for our children's view of authority. God has entrusted that with you. You have young, moldable minds. Even if they're in college, they're out of college, you still have influence in their life. I, I mean, I, when I was in high school and even the early years of college, I thought my parents were crazy. And then, you know, I, I get married and I'm all of a sudden calling mom and say, hey, mom, you know, one thing you said, can you remind me of that again? You know, it, you just kind of come back around when you hit these places where you realize, okay, I have no idea what I'm doing. And that's, that's very natural. That's why God gives us parents. So, for instance, if we say one thing and let our children repeatedly do another thing, we are helping our children to create a view of authority that is contradictory. We're, we're, if, this, if this obedience never leads to consequences, we help them live in a lie. We're not setting them up for whoever they're going to be under authority-wise in the future, because we're always going to be under someone else's authority. Um, now, now, we have the opportunity also to show grace in their struggle. It's a beautiful thing. We have the opportunity to show them Jesus in the midst of it, but grace is not parenting in an inconsequential way with our kids. That's, that's more damaging than anything else. So if you're anything like me, I'm, I'm afraid to make my kids obey one, you know, sometimes. And it's just tiring too, isn't it? It's just tiring. And I remember when Tatum was two, she's our oldest. Maybe, no, she was younger than that. Maybe one. Um, and it was to the point where it was like, you know, there needs to be some consequences for this, you know. I mean, you get to know pretty quick that your kid's a sinner, right? Um, especially if you got more than one. You just see it quick. And, uh, and so, you know, I was just wrestling with, you know, am I, am I supposed to spank my kids? Can I say that? Um, am I supposed to show, am I supposed to discipline them? Am I supposed to do this? And I remember reading through the Proverbs, and I, everything inside of me wanted to say no. No, 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 no. Have you seen her, God? She's beautiful. She's cute. She's amazing. And every time when I went back to the scriptures, I just saw that it is in his word. I can't avoid it. Listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says in question 104. It says, what is God's will for you in the fifth commandment to, to, to honor uh, our parents um, and, to, and to obey them? Um, the answer is this, that I honor, love, and be loyal to my mother and my father and all those in authority over me. That I obey and submit to them as is proper when they correct and they punish me to show me consequences. And get this right here. And also that I be patient with their failings. For through them, God chooses to rule us. Our parents are an extension of God's rule and reign in our lives. You, as, as, a, as a child, you get to live in that. And as a parent, you get to practice that. The second side of this is where the scriptures talk about the particular role of a father. And, and how he might have a tendency to, to provoke his children. So what, what is that word provoke mean? I think it has a similar meaning to this idea of nagging or constantly picking at their flaws. Um, 
And, and the result of doing that with our children is that they just get so tired and discouraged and they just have this self-view of themselves that they can never get anything right. And as fathers, I think, I think the reason Paul says this is that you have a particular influence in your kid's life that no one else does. And by constantly discouraging them, you, you, you go from behavior down into their soul somehow. I don't know how it happens, but it happens because you and I feel it as children ourselves. But you have this opportunity to encourage them, not discourage them. Now, it, it doesn't look like never life without consequences, but what it does look like is grace and encouragement in the midst of it. And one of the things that we try to do in our family, take it or leave it for yourself, is that whenever we have a moment of discipline, whether it's a timeout or you lose screen time, that's the, I mean, you will think the world has ended, you take a screen away. And so whatever it is, is to, is to, is to deal with the consequence of, of whatever it is quickly and then move on past it. But sometimes we have this tendency to use past failings of our children as leverage for obedience in the future. Am I preaching? You know what I'm talking about? We say, I remember when you did that. You're just going to do the same thing you did last time, buddy. And what it does is it discourages our kids. We've got to show them the same grace that God has showed us. Now, I just want to close this, this point with this. Jonathan Edwards, who was... Um, one of the, the pastors that helped lead the, the First Great Awakening in, in the Northeast U.S., uh, he, he instructed uh, families in his church by saying this, every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church. As a little church. Think about it like that way. At home, under your roof, is the smallest unit of what the church is. And dad, guess what? You're the pastor. You're the pastor. Not the youth pastor, not the children's director, not me. We, we have pastoral influence, but you're the primary pastor in their lives. And you have this responsibility to encourage their souls. And you have this opportunity where you can encourage them in ways that no other person on the face of the planet can. So I just want to challenge you, mothers, fathers, families, as you think about obedience in your family, as you think about discipline in your family, you think about encouragement in your family, don't see it so much as something that you just come up with on your own, but as a commissioning from the Lord to frame and set uh, the trajectory for young minds in your home. It's a great opportunity. Maybe it's a, a lunch conversation uh, today or something like that. I want to encourage you to, to, to debrief it though. Thirdly, uh, let, let's, let's uh, land the plane with this point. Living before the face of God in our work. Let me remind you what the scriptures say here in this relationship with work. And this, this scripture I'm going to break down into two different points. We really got to talk about this word slave and why that's in the Bible and what do we do with that. And we got to talk about work and work ethic and things like that and how we relate to work. So let me read it for us here. Colossians 3.22 through 4.1. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. And there is no partiality, masters. Treat your bondservants justly and fairly. And then the ultimate Jesus juke. For you also have a master in heaven. Live like that, he says. 
So uh, let's talk about slavery real quick here. Um, so slavery is, when we hear the word slavery, uh, and let me just say this, slavery is always bad. It's never good. But when we hear the word slavery, we have a particular view of, of uh, what slavery is because of our context here in the U.S. Slavery's always been wrong, but slavery at this time was a, it was a little bit different. And I think it's important that we realize that because we would expect Paul to come out and say, hey, you know, masters, let your slaves go. You know, what's wrong with you guys? Don't y'all get the gospel? We're free in Jesus. How do you feel like you own people? But he doesn't say that, and it kind of confuses and, and disorients us a bit. Slavery is different at this time because it, it wasn't race-based, and about a third of the Roman Empire were slaves. It doesn't make it right. It's just what it was. Now, you could become a slave through a prison sentence, through not paying a debt, or through some type of unjust oppression or kidnapping or something like that. And, and this made it possible that, that this reality is possible, that basically if you didn't own property, um, you could become a slave pretty easily. If you fell into some hard times, you could become a slave. Um, and you'll notice that, that Paul doesn't come out and, and lead by force in this and say slavery is wrong. And why does he not do that? I don't know. Some commentators uh, speculate that, that this would have been useless as a small Christian movement in the middle of the biggest empire in the history of the world, or one of them, the Roman Empire, uh, where the entire economy was based on the idea of a bondservant. Uh, I think that Paul doesn't come out and say that because he wants to talk about a type of deeper freedom. He doesn't want them to miss the trees for the forest in this. Now, granted, there was injustice happening, absolutely. But he wants to talk about their freedom in Christ. One of our values as a church is reconciled and reconciling. Now, it does no good for us to think about reconciling, whether it be racial reconciliation or reconciliation with, with two other believers or anything like that, unless we've first been reconciled to God. So what Paul wants to focus on here is the fact that because they've been reconciled to God, these slaves, they live differently. They, they approach their work differently. They approach life differently. And, and he's most concerned about them being able to immediately sense a bigger freedom than release from slavery. Because they can immediately grab onto this reality. He does this by showing us that it's not ultimately the slave master that you work for, but for God. He zooms this whole thing out. And, and the slave master isn't the ultimate authority, but God is. I love what F.F. What Bruce says here. He kind of helped me understand this a bit. He says this. What Paul's letters do is bring us into an atmosphere, a culture, in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. Could only wilt and die. So he sets these folks that are, that are enslaved and they have bosses that, that lord over them and, and own them at least for a season of their life. And he says, listen, the gospel can change even that. He could change even that. So it's helpful for us to understand what was going on there. Was it wrong? Absolutely. Why did Paul not come out and directly say that? I don't know, but that's my speculation. So in the context of this, something that can immediately apply to us is what the lordship of Christ, living before the face of God, quorum Dio, means in our work. Because the whole relationship of slave to slave master was a relationship that worked itself out through the way that they worked. And so what he says here is some interesting things. He, he, he talks about this, this idea to not just play the part of a slave as a way 
to give kind of eye service to their master, but to sincerely serve their earthly master. This would have been a revolutionary idea. Paul was concerned about the gospel going to slave and slave master and turning the world upside down. He's saying Jesus is the Lord, not that master that you have that you work for. He's saying that because Christ is ruling in you, Colossians 3.15, that you can submit yourself to anyone because your reward is not from them, it's from God. That it'd be possible for you to be free from that master, but yet still be enslaved to sin. But, but the message that he gives them is you are free from the power of sin. Even if you still are experiencing oppression here and now. I had a pastor, really one of the first pastors I had after I became a Christian. And he used to, he was like this good old boy from Kentucky. And, and he used to say, man, Christians ought to be the hardest working people on the face of the planet. And he would give examples like, hey, instead of just like leaving your grocery cart out in the middle of the parking lot, like put it in the corral, or even better yet, take it up to the front door of the store. And those things just stuck with me, but I think he was on to something. When I read Colossians 3, I think about that, that my work ought to mirror my relationship with Christ. Now, I don't know where that hits you today. Maybe you're, maybe you're someone that really does not like your 9 to 5 right now or whatever your hours are. Maybe you disdain your supervisor because they are oppressive to you. Maybe they verbally abuse you. Maybe all kinds of things happen, okay? There are times when you need to get out, and other times the Lord keeps us in those moments. I'm not talking about abuse, but he keeps us in these unpleasant situations. How would living before the face of God change how you work? That's a question for you to consider this week. How would the fact that it's not just you and your boss and your coworkers, but Jesus is in the room too, how would that change the way that you view your work? Maybe some of you would actually work less. It's not up to you. It's up to Jesus. And so I'm going to fulfill my commitment, and I'm going to get home for dinner at 5. Maybe for some of you, maybe you're, just, you're kind of slothful and lazy in your work. Maybe you pick it up a little bit because you're not ultimately working for that company, but you're working for Jesus. And he's done a deep work in you that changes the way that you view your work. Dorothy Sayers once wrote this, and I'll, I'll close with this. What is the Christian understanding of work? It is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live. That's the way that we see it, isn't it? but the thing one lives to do. It is, or as it should be, the fullest expression of the worker's faculties, the medium in which he offers himself to God. So church, whatever the work is you're doing this week, maybe you're changing diapers of your, your newborn baby as a stay-at-home mom, or maybe you're changing tires, or you're leading people as an executive, or you're flipping burgers, or whatever you're doing, it is possible for you to bring the kingdom of God through the way that you view your work and even the work that you do. Now as we see this, we see it, it changes everything when we see that God wants us to see every relationship that we have as if he were in the room working in and through and with us. So let's go after that church because the kingdom of God wants to work in your marriage, in your relationships, in your family, and through your work. Let's pray. Father, just give thanks. Um, we give thanks for your word because it is so different than the way that we want to live sometimes. 
than the way that we want to parent or serve and love our spouses or what we want to say to our boss. But I'm reminded that there's no place that you don't exist. You are omnipresent. We are not. You are with us, working in and through and alongside of us in everything that we do, in every conversation that we have. And Lord, would you just help us to live before your face today, to consider the fact that nothing is hidden that will not be made visible. Would you help us to grow in our awareness of that today? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.